Welcome to the Bakita podcast this week. Uh, this week, we're going to be interviewing Logan Crawford. Uh, Logan has been working in the environmental industry for the last four years. Uh, currently, he's an environmental coordinator at a university in Florida. And, you know, we're happy to have Logan on because he's going to, um, you know, tell us a little bit about himself and uh, about some of the things that, you know, he has gone through on his, you know, career journey here and, and some of the things that he's looking forward to in the future. Logan, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, thanks, uh, Kendra and Damien. I uh, appreciate the opportunity. Um, so currently I'm an environmental health and safety coordinator at a university here in Florida. Um, I've been working on uh, hazardous waste management, stormwater compliance, uh, as well as laboratory inspections and trainings, but I didn't start out that way. Um, I actually started out as a environmental specialist with a hazardous waste vendor, uh, helping out you know, higher education and uh, pharmaceutical companies as well uh, in the South Florida area, which kind of gave me my start uh, within the environmental health and safety industry. Um, I started out lab hacking and, you know, working on uh, obtaining a greater or better understanding in regards to regulations and policies such as, you know, DOT, RICRA, um, stormwater compliance. And so that's pretty much where I got my start in the environmental health and safety field. Um, I've been doing this for about four years and uh, looking at continuing my growth in the field um, by tackling new and exciting items every day. What's your passion about the environmental field? Like what draws you to wanting to, to work in this industry? In college, I actually uh, took some undergraduate courses that kind of got me into this uh, policy, like analysis and or like ap application basically. Um, so, you know, taking courses like environmental policy, how those policies uh, created change and or differences in the U.S., whether it be today or 60 years ago. Um, so, you know, going back to the 1960s with the Clean Water Act and, and then after that, the Clean Air Act and th those types of things really interested me. Um, so after I graduated uh, from, from college, I, you know, I looked for things like, you know, consulting jobs and stuff like that. But um, as I looked, I realized that uh, I kind of needed to grow my understanding um, with policies and regulations and what better way than to deal with, you know, things like hazardous waste and, you know, DOT. And so as a waste funder, that kind of gave me my, my roots to kind of start my environmental health and safety um, understanding and kind of blossom from there. So what would you choose to do differently if there was anything? Um, if I could go back, I probably would have chosen to have like do an internship or several internships um, at the university I was at. There was a fairly small environmental health and safety uh, department. They're always looking for, you know, um, we had to do like service learning hours, basically like a, a, a free internship. Um, so doing something like that, because working in those small departments, you have uh, people who are multi-dimensional, you know, you might have someone that's the radiation safety officer and the biological safety officer, or, you know, someone that does stormwater compliance and hazardous waste. So, you know, working in, uh, 
you know, interning with the Environmental Health and Safety Office or, uh, you know, taking part with working within a lab on campus too. Uh, you'd get to see those different policies and procedures that they put in place, like, you know, uh, SOPs for how to handle this or how to handle that within the lab. Um, I think that would have provided further insight, I guess, in a way into the, the world of environmental health and safety, um, at least from a higher education standpoint. Um, you know, even because my passion in undergraduate was in like policy and policy and analysts, uh, analysis, sorry, um, you know, trying to intern with uh, an environmental consulting firm too, you know, whether it be with environmental assistance or environmental impact statements. And then is there anything like specific that you're looking to, um, is there anything specific that you're looking for to move your, move forward your career in the H&S field? Um, I mean, as I move forward in the field of environmental health and safety, um, I guess I'm constantly looking to become a more well-rounded um, individual, both for myself and as well as for the people that I work with. Um, again, I, I work at a fairly small um, university, so you have people that are multidimensional too, um, that you know do take up uh, multiple roles uh, in that department. So. I guess being more multidimensional myself um, makes it easier for me to understand certain things as well as to serve those people who ask questions like, you know, professors, like students. Um, so it helps me better serve them and the pursuit of becoming a more well-rounded environmental health and safety professional um, also provides career advancements as I continue the, my journey in environmental health and safety. What type of things would help you along your path? Like, is there anything that like you wish you, you know, had available to you today that would make, you know, further in your career easier? Um, I mean, I've looked at, you know, some certifications within the, the field of environmental health and safety, um, like the hazard or certified hazardous material manager um, helps me, you know, kind of continue and, and grow my growth and understanding um, from a hazardous material standpoint, since, such that it's, it's one of my concentrations and one of my job duties. So um, it just, it gives me much more background and information and makes me a better uh, person to handle those types of things. But also, um, you know, obtaining a greater understanding in, you know, biosafety. So I try to, you know, take courses, uh, you know, free courses or courses online, learn from different people, you know, uh, to, to help create more of a culture uh, rather than a safety climate. Cool. Well, we appreciate you coming on today and chatting with us, Logan. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on. Looking forward to having you back sometime, maybe. Like, well, maybe. I appreciate the opportunity to, you know, to to kind of talk with you guys and kind of give my own uh, two cents of, you know, what got me started. Now you get to join us for the article portion. <laughs> All right. So, thanks for doing the interviewing, Damien. Uh, we're gonna get into the articles now. Last week, we discussed the executive order to protect public health and the environment. And then we also talked about a liquid nitrogen leak that happened in Gainesville, Georgia at a food packing plant. We do have an update on that. Uh, the Chemical Safety Board has released some preliminary information pertaining to the incident. And here are some of the bullet points. 
a new freezing system was installed and a different type of system was being used, which was ammonia based. The old equipment is co-located in the area next to the new system, but it is not being used. Some tools were located in the vicinity of the line four immersion freezer. And we have since learned that the unplanned maintenance was being conducted. The chemical safety board has been interviewing key staff with firsthand knowledge of the incident. So I guess this is a to be continued type thing. Uh, this week we'll be talking about a China mine rescue and then a US Department of Labor's OSHA press release that was released on February 5th. So go ahead and take away the first article, Damien. Yeah, so the first article uh, is about an explosion at the Husan gold mine on January 10th where groups of miners were trapped under hundreds of meters underground. Rescue teams made contact with a group of 11 surviving miners a week after the blast and they had drilled some small holes to supply them with food and medicine. And they're still trying to determine the cause of the explosion. So there's also a, there was also another group of 11 miners trapped in the blast that they don't know what the status is on them. And rescue operations are trying to drill a shaft big enough for the miners to get out, but it's being complicated because there are some concerns with water in the area and they don't want to flood out the mine where the, where the, the miners are currently trapped. Um, so after the explosion, really there was no signs of life at the area for a week. And then they had lowered ropes into some of the, the chambers, some of the shafts where the miners were located and the, the miners ended up tugging on the rope. That's how they, they found out that there was people still alive. So they had sent up a, a paper note on the rope telling authorities that there were 12 miners uh, that they knew of trapped down there. There was a, a group of 11 in one chamber and then there was one that was uh, slightly deeper in, uh, in an alternate location in the mine. And mining accidents in general are not uncommon in China. You know, regulations are pretty poor, poorly enforced there. Uh, September of last year, there was an incident where 16 miners had died after a carbon monoxide leak in a coal mine and 23 more died at the same mine in, the, in December, three months later. And then in this instance, there, uh, there was a couple updates to it. So on January 24th, rescue teams managed to pull the 11 miners that were trapped out. Um, they're trapped more than 2,000 feet below ground. And then on January 25th, the rescuers found the, the bodies of nine more miners, bringing the total death toll to 10 for this incident. So didn't they used to, isn't the canary in the, in the mine one of those things for carbon monoxide? How did, you know, do they not use that type of methodology anymore? I don't think China does not canaries. I mean, these days, you know, we have these fancy thing called like, you know, four gas meters, you know, that measure carbon monoxide and oxygen levels and, you know, explosion risks. Re you know, regulations in general, I th I don't know much about Chinese regulations, but, you know, it, the labor is usually pretty cheap. So 
that's usually because they're not as highly regulated or they're not enforcing the regulations so they can kind of you know cut corners so to speak um but yeah i mean it, it it's it seems as if I would never go to that. I would never work in the mine that in September and then in December, you know, a number of people had died. You know, I think that's uh, a telltale sign that there's definitely something wrong there. Maybe they could do something where they could like reinforce, I don't know, the infrastructure underneath the ground, maybe, you know, so that there aren't cave-ins like that. Yeah, they, they do some like shoring work, I'm sure, mm -hmm. to kind of pull things up. You know, this for me personally, like heights, I don't like. And the opposite of that, like being 2,000 feet underground, I would not be caught doing. It's the, uh, yeah, risk yeah, averse. I feel the same way with that. It's terrible that this happens like frequently too, you know, it's not just like, oh yeah, once a year type thing seems like a pretty risky job. And with a lack of regulations where they are, it makes it even worse. So I know they couldn't find, what was it, 11 or 10 other miners? I think they weren't able, they weren't able to get in contact with um they use ground penetrating radar from a surface level i wonder if they could ever use something like that at, at you know that type of depth to see if there's anything that they could find usually you can see like a cavern how they use the ground penetrating radar you can see those wavelengths and see if there's a pocket here or a pocket there maybe that would give them some insight in terms of like maybe trying to drill in a different area to see where those other miners might be yeah, I mean, I think it's like, you know, poke, just poking holes in the ground. Yeah. Kind of hard to tell, like, you know, it's trying hard to like pinpoint like if a group of people 2,000 feet below the surface. I, I think that's can be a little challenging. Thanks for that article. Um, the next one that we're going to discuss is really short. So the the U.S. Department of Labor's OSHA, they issued a proposed rule to update the hazard communication standard, the HASCOM. Uh, this press release came out on February 5th of this year, and basically they issued a proposed rule to update the agency's hazard communication standard to align with the seventh revision of the globally harmonized system of classification and labeling of chemicals, also known as GHS. Basically, this update will increase worker protections and reduce the in incidence of chemical-related occupational illnesses and injuries. And then they're going to do this by improving the information on the labels and safety data sheets for hazard chemicals. So really brief, but basically GHS made an update and now HASCOM is going to align with those standards. So thank you, OSHA. Now, th this is specific to labeling of chemicals? Yeah, labeling of chemicals and updating safety data sheets for hazardous chemicals. So is, do you think this is geared at like 
chemicals that like maybe purchased from overseas to make sure that like we're following the same naming convention and identification for, you know, chemicals that we may be purchasing from China or Europe. It's possible. I mean, it's called the global harmonized system for a reason. I think we should all be on the same page with, with that stuff. Especially um, with communication of safety standards. I mean, people speaking all different languages, people know numerics. So to have, you know, a, a number system or a color based system, you know, pretty smart way to go. I really like how the, the new safety data sheets are laid out. The 16 sections, super easy to find stuff. We actually, uh, you know, not only do we have our paper copies, but we started doing stuff with labs to have like a, uh, like a USB type drive. We want to try to institute that. So if there's ever an incident, not only if, if we can't get the, you know, the paper copies from that lab or they're in an office or something, we could always take a USB drive too that has all that information for certain, you know, if there is, a, you know, a, a major issue with a certain lab. You had to look at an SDS tonight. Homework. <laughs> what kind of information do you find on it? On SDS? Yeah. Uh, could be first aid procedures or uh, uh, chemical segregation and storage. Um, you know, whether there's, uh, you know, lethal dose or toxicity, you know, LD50s or anything like that, uh, DOT shipping information for characterization, um, section 10 for, you know, requirements for storage, whether it's reactive, uh, you know, incompatibles, etc. Um, I, I like to look a lot at sections 10 and 14 for and I think it's six for chemical storage. Yeah, so a lot of good information, how you can store chemicals, what happens if, you know, there's an incident or an exposure, how to ship stuff. Mm -hmm. Good information to have in review. Yeah, I think all too often people just, you know, we usually make copies, you know, at our receiving department of everything that comes in anyways, because um, we actually try to tag before uh, things get to their final destination to, you know, put an EHS tag and keep that, the pick or the packing information with it. Um, but to see, you know, what's coming into the university, what's being used and helps us uh, better understand what's in certain areas. Wow, that's impressive, actually. That's really proactive of your guys' yeah, so department. We, we tag everything ahead of time so that way we can use it for our tier two reporting. And we do that proactively and mandate that uh, basically the, the PIs or the people, you know, using those labs have to adjust that inventory as, you know, they use a bottle, they take it out of their inventory and they can also set standards for, okay, this four liter bottle has one liter left, we need to place an order. So it actually lets them know when they need to order things too, but it also gives them chemical storage requirements mm -hmm. as well. So it's cool. So thanks again, everybody for joining with us this week, uh, tuning into the Bikita News with uh, Damien, Kendra, and our special guest, Logan.
Uh, we hope they enjoyed the discussion and the interview on this episode. Uh, as always, you can head over to bikita.org. You can join our mailing list. You can also find links to the articles and resources for this episode on the website. Just remember to uh, go check out our YouTube channel, subscribe, and you can find us on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again for joining us.